from uh, about 15 years on up, uh, a great deal of my thoughts were uh, basically unshareable. We are all evil in some form or another. Yes, I am not 100%, but I am evil. My mother was a, a sick, angry, hungry, and very sad woman. I hated her, but I wanted to love my mother. This is Serial Killing, a podcast. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello again, and welcome to Serial Killing, a podcast where we sometimes veer off the serial killer path to delve into other topics within our beloved true crime community. Special thanks to my patrons who voted for this episode. Thank you so much. You are truly appreciated. And for anyone else, please feel free to join my patrons so that you can vote on who will be covered next or get early access to the podcasts. Like, share, and subscribe. It might just help our little community grow. So today's podcast was voted for by patrons and will be on the murders of Russell and Shirley Dermond. So let's dive right in. Um, so I want to tackle this a bit differently since this case is as of this recording, still unsolved. People get murdered every single day on this planet, and it is so easy to forget the names and faces of these people. And it is also easy to feel bad for, but regardless, dismiss the murders or deaths of elderly people. It's sad, that goes without saying. But I think people sort of smooth that over with the fact that, you know, at least it wasn't a child, or at least they had gotten to live a full and happy life. This case was suggested by one of you, and as I began to dig, I felt myself feeling the, you know, adequate amount of empathy for this couple's children and grandchildren, the local community, and so on. So I made myself stop and look at it through the lens of, you know, this could have been my beloved grandparents who never wronged anyone, who were the pillars of their community, charitable, honest, and hardworking people who were once young and vivacious and optimistic about their whole life ahead of them, and it made it more personal to me. So I invite you to also look at this couple in the same way. Insert a beloved elderly couple of your choosing in your mind as you listen. So here we go. Russell was born in Hackensack, New Jersey in June of 1925. In the 1940 census, it shows only his father, mother, and himself, which leads me to believe that he was either an only child or perhaps he had grown siblings. But his parents were in their early 30s, so I'd go out on a limb and say he was an only child. But in the 1940 census, when Russell was 14 years old, it was said he worked as a paper boy, delivering newspapers to homes in the neighborhood. At that time, his father had been a mechanic and his mother had been a waitress. Russell grew up and went to college, joined the U.S. Navy, and he served in World War II. 
So Shirley was born in July of 1926 in Maywood, New Jersey. In the 1940 census, she too seemed to be the only child to her parents. Her mother had been from England, it said anyway, and her father from New York. But in 1940, she was 13 years old, and both of her parents were 39, living in New Jersey. Her father had worked as an auditor at a bank, and her mother was not working outside of the home at that time. One thing that struck me about Shirley was that she was described as being, once grown, only five feet, two inches tall, which is really only one inch shorter than myself, but she really was a beauty, and Russell himself was a handsome young man. So the couple both went to college, and they got married in December of 1950, and they went on to have four children, three sons, Keith, Mark, and Brad, and a daughter, Leslie. Now, at some point during the 80s, the couple and their children moved from New Jersey to the Atlanta, Georgia area. Information about Russell states that he had been a businessman his whole life, working in the clock manufacturing business for a company that sources called General Time Corporation. Then after, and while I couldn't verify how long he had been in this particular business, Sources stated that he owned several stores of the Wendy's fast food chain, though one source said it was Hardee's and yet another said McDonald's. Now, which of them precisely is irrelevant at this point, but the takeaway was that he worked hard and he was quite successful. Russell retired in 1994 and sold his businesses basically to, I believe, two of his sons who took over. This is when the couple built a beautiful house at the end of a cul-de-sac on the shore of Lake Oconee. With the children long grown and gone by this point, they settled into this pretty affluent area to enjoy their post-retirement lives together. Their oldest son, Mark, however, developed a serious drug habit along the way, and it was said that he unfortunately got so bad he began stealing from his parents. Now, they allegedly bailed him out time and time again, made excuses, tried to help him, as so many people do when they have loved ones in that state, but they eventually had to cut him off. I don't know if they sort of disowned him in a way, knowing there was nothing they could do or what, but in the year 2000, Mark was killed during a drug deal, or what he thought was going to be a drug deal. Mark thought he was meeting a man to sell him some crack cocaine. The man was there to rob Mark of his money and leave. Mark wound up being shot three times in the neck and torso, and he died. His murderer was thankfully caught and arrested. Russell and Shirley did not attend his trial, and he is still in prison today. As the years went on, the couple would take road trips to visit their three remaining children who lived in South Carolina and Florida. So their home, which was not too far from Atlanta, was a pretty good equal distance between them. They spent a lot of time visiting their children and grandchildren. When they were home, Shirley was very active in the neighborhood bridge club and played every week. Russell became an avid golfer in their community, which actually had its own helipad, literally a place to park a helicopter. 
Their gated community was super secure, having a guard booth of sorts at the entrance where people were not permitted to drive through without phoning the house that they were there to see or the residents had specific stickers for their vehicles. There was a whole security system at the entrance, cameras and all, and of course the Dermans had a security system on their house as well. So the Dermans became good friends with some of their other elderly neighbors and spent time with them. They went to church regularly. Anyone who knew them had nothing but nice things to say about them. They were absolutely adored by all of their family and friends. And time kept passing, as time has a habit of doing. And in 2012, Russell and Shirley sold their boat they kept docked off of their yard on their little private dock. Shirley, in 2012, was 85 years old now, and she had begun to slow down a bit, not being able to really comfortably walk down the property and climb around on a boat. But again, they stayed very active and social as they began to really age. And even with advanced age, so to speak, Shirley was still a whiz at doing the crossword puzzles in her USA Today paper. She and Russell were computer savvy enough that they sent emails, but not tech savvy enough to ever want anything as simple as an ATM card. They broke down and got cell phones, but they weren't known to sit and play on them as the rest of us do, right? Russell himself decided to put away his golf clubs for good, but he would still take walks around the golf course to stay active, which is fantastic. So in the spring of 2014, Russell and Shirley were invited to a gathering at a nearby neighbor's house revolving around the Kentucky Derby, which for those of you who are not familiar or perhaps one of our international friends, this is just a really super fancy horse race. It's a whole big affair, but this friend group had planned a little party where they were going to watch the race and eat and be merry, right? On Thursday, May 1st, 2014, 88-year-old Russell and 87-year-old Shirley spent their day doing nothing outside of the usual. Russell was seen going for his walkabout on the golf course. He left the house around 2 p.m. Thursday afternoon to run errands around town. He drove through the bank drive through window to deposit money into an account, I believe. He then went to the local grocery store to pick up, you know, a few food items along with Shirley's prescription. After that, he went back home. While her husband was away, Shirley went to her regularly scheduled bridge game. That evening, their son Brad called to check in on them, see how they were doing, what the family gossip was, you know, things families do on the phone, and all was well. Nothing to report. Friday morning, the couple got back up to start the next day, the same as before. Shirley doing her crossword puzzle and Russell going for his walk on the golf course. A neighbor noticed Russell on his walk. It was just like clockwork. Also during the day on Friday, Shirley sent an email, which again, the couple were known to do. At 4.30 that afternoon, the mail was deposited into the Dermans' mailbox, and that mail was retrieved and taken inside. Saturday, May 3rd, was the derby party with their neighbors, except... Russell and Shirley never showed up for the party, which was rather strange. The Dermans would never not show up, and besides, they had been happy to get the invite and seemed excited to come. The neighbors called to see if they needed anything, but no one answered. 
Well, that's not new, as Russell and Shirley again traveled quite a bit to visit their children. You know, they probably made plans to visit one of their children and forgot about the party. That's it. Sunday was quiet, and the Dermans still weren't home. No big deal. They'd probably be home later that evening. Monday came and went, and still no one was home when the neighbor attempted to phone them. By Tuesday, the neighbors became concerned, and the wife asked her husband, both in their 70s, if he would come with her to stop by their house and check on them. They went to the Dermond residence and walked to the front door, which was facing the lake. The back of the house faced the road, like the garage doors, all that faced the road. So this distinction is important to remember. Front door faces the lake. They knocked on the door, but no one answered. They tried the knob to see if the door was unlocked, and it was. So they politely walked through the threshold, you know, calling out to their friends. They checked through the usual rooms, but found no one. The husband glanced in the garage. No one. They checked the bedrooms and other areas of the house, but Russell and Shirley were not there. They checked the entire house and found that, though the house was clean and pristine as it always was, save this unmade bed, the Dermans just weren't home. But Shirley's purse and cell phone were sitting on the dresser or the vanity. They saw that Shirley had started her crossword puzzle at the dining room table, her pencil still resting on the top of the page. There was also an open laptop on the dining room table. Surely they were around somewhere, right? The husband decided to go into the garage to check their two vehicles, and that was when he was met with a sight that changed everything. The husband looked behind the cars, and there was Russell laying behind one of them on the garage floor, except his head was gone. He had been decapitated. The couple raced to call 911. When the sheriff arrived, this is what he observed. Russell's body was found lying on the garage floor behind one of the vehicles near one of the two garage doors. He had been dressed in a faded red t-shirt with dried blood on it, partially pushed up his torso, and blood-soaked blue and white striped boxer shorts. There was also a bunched-up bathrobe under his body. His house slippers were nearby on the floor of the garage as well. The head was nowhere to be found. The bottoms of his bare feet were stained with blood. Towels from the house had been placed around the body as well as along the bottom of the garage door to keep blood and other bodily fluids from running down and out onto the driveway. There was a short blood trail near the body from the body being moved, maybe only two to three feet to perhaps position it for easier decapitation. There was a circular kind of blood stain on the garage floor near the body that was bigger around than a head, possibly from the head being placed there for a time. Russell's hands were bruised and bloody and he had also suffered a fairly substantial injury by means of a gash from his left index finger all the way down to his palm. The sheriff observed that there seemed to be hair sort of tangled in that gash as well. A search for the entire property showed that Shirley was just straight up missing. The sheriff noted that there was absolutely zero sign of a struggle within the home, 
No overturned furniture, broken household items, or papers strewn about like we see in so many crime scene photos. Shirley was very proud of her house, and she kept it supremely clean, and everything was neat and tidy, and as it should be. But again, her purse and cell phone were still inside the home, which didn't look good for her. The only thing that seemed out of order in the house was that the bed was not made, which was not like Shirley to leave that way. Speaking with the Dermans' children, they indicated that she was the sort of, you know, quote, get up and around morning person, while Russell was not quite that way. So, with the way Russell had been dressed, it could very well be that she had awakened before him and began her day while Russell had been sort of bumming it for a bit, you know, fresh out of bed. There was also no sign of forced entry whatsoever, and very valuable items, such as Rolex watches, for example, that were out and could easily be taken had been left. Nothing appeared to be stolen from the house. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. So here is Russell's autopsy. Post-mortem decapitation. Circumferential sharp force injury of the skin of the neck without hemorrhage. Transection of the subcutaneous and soft tissues of the neck. Transection of the pharynx with absence of the epiglottis and hyoid bone. The thyroid cartilage is intact. Transection of the vertebral body of C5. Transection of the spinal cord. Associated postmortem abrasions. A two and three quarter by one fourth discontinuous yellow green postmortem abrasion is on the anterior surface of the neck and is continuous with the circumferential sharp force injury of the skin. A three and a half by one sixteenth inch yellow green postmortem abrasion is obliquely oriented on the left side of the neck. The anterior end is continuous with the circumferential sharp force injury of the skin. A one and a quarter and three sixteenth inch dark green curved postmortem abrasion is on top of the left shoulder. Craniocerebral trauma not otherwise specified. Decomposition is mild. Dark discoloration of the muscles and soft tissues of the neck. Green discoloration and marbling of the skin of the neck, shoulders, and arms, as well as green and red discoloration of the skin of the back. Skin slippage of the skin of the back and buttocks. Dehydration of the fingers and toes. He also had severe arthrosclerotic cardiovascular disease. I hope I pronounced that correctly. What we get from that part is that they said that he was he was decapitated, which we already knew. But then they talk about the discoloration, the green and the red discoloration of the skin on his back. That would be from being lying down and gravity pulling that blood down to be level. Bruised up and bloody hands indicate that um, he did fight back. You know, he was ex-military, so I'm sure he would not go down without getting a lick or two in. Dehydration in the fingers and the toes is just the fact that the body is sort of beginning to decay. 
So the head was removed after he had already died, as we know, and the cut had been just above the line of the collar of his shirt. And though his body had laid there for days, he was not dramatically decomposed because the garage was also air-conditioned. The cuts to the neck had been clean, indicating that the perpetrator or perpetrators might have some experience or at least knew what they were doing. There were also no fingerprints in the house that couldn't be accounted for whatsoever, none that shouldn't be there. Luminol was used throughout the entire house to see if there was any blood detected, considering the horror of the crime, but there was none. There was zero blood spatter anywhere, in fact. The only blood really anywhere was just what had pooled in the garage around the body. It was later found that there was gun residue on the back of the collar of his shirt, which indicates that he was most likely shot in the back of the head, and yet there was no trace blood, no brain matter, absolutely nothing in the house, anywhere. The hairs found in the wound of Russell's hand was, in fact, Shirley's. So perhaps they ripped the couple apart, which is devastating. He had no bruising around his ankles or wrists or anything of that nature, indicating that he had not been bound or restrained at any time. So at this point, the sheriff believed that this might have been a case of Shirley being kidnapped for ransom, except there was no ransom note. Some people also speculated that she killed him and then killed herself, but she was 87 years old. Let's be real. There really wasn't much hope that Shirley was in fact alive, but... She was considered a missing person, and everyone, including the media, was alerted to her being missing. The lake around the Dermond property was checked, the bottom dragged to find any clues, or possibly Russell's head, or maybe Shirley herself, but nothing was found. They checked a great deal of the lake, actually, but it is important to know that Lake Oconee is massive. It spans three counties and was created when they dammed the Oconee River long before the Dermans ever considered living there. Other than possibly around the house or the arm of the lake that they resided on, which was very secluded, it would be like finding a needle in a haystack. Now, this was a very safe area, guys. Little to no crime, really, ever. It was determined that Russell was murdered either Friday night as the couple were getting ready for bed or Saturday morning, just as they were getting up and around, and I personally lean very heavily that it was Saturday morning due to the crossword puzzle only being partially worked, Russell in his pajamas and the bed not being made yet. So the sheriff went to the community gate, where security was, and asked for any CCTV footage they might have so that he could see who was going in and coming out of the area. To his surprise, he was told that there had been a bad storm a you know, couple weeks back prior, and lightning had struck something disabling the security cameras, so there was no footage to review. Of course, the neighbors were questioned, and only one neighbor saw anything out of the ordinary. She claimed to have seen a man in the Dermans' yard early Saturday, but that the house was so far away she couldn't make out age, physical features, nothing. So it could have been Russell himself, and so that didn't turn up anything. And also, with this being an affluent area and whatnot, a substantial number of the houses in that community were empty during the week. There were a lot of weekend people and some seasonal. And again, 
the Dermond house was at the end of a cul-de-sac, so their property was more remote than most. The community is also heavily, heavily forested, which also obscures the views of the house. So, days went by with no word from the perpetrator, and really, it is widely believed that there were at least two perpetrators, all things considered. No trace of Shirley and their loved ones began to lose hope. And then, about ten days after Russell was found murdered, Shirley was found just over five miles away from her home. Some fishermen were out on their boat fishing right near the dam when they noticed something in the water that shouldn't have been there. When they realized it was human remains, they called the police. Because this is a man-made lake, walk with me here, okay? There are trees just under the surface, as you can imagine. Shirley was kind of tangled in the branches of an old submerged tree. She was face down, bloated to nearly twice her size, meaning she had been in the water for some time. She was fully clothed, including socks and shoes, in her normal day attire, meaning she was not in pajamas. Tied to her ankles by what was described as parachute cord was a dark blue mesh bag, and within the bag were two 30-pound red cinder blocks or concrete blocks. Where she was located was only accessible by boat and was by the dam, so it was some of the deepest water of the lake, over 40 feet deep, to be exact. So due to the natural decomposition process, the gases in her body had expanded and she had become buoyant enough that she floated up to the surface with the weights still tied to her ankles. So, here is Shirley's autopsy results. Evidence of injury. There is evidence of blunt force injury to the head and binding. These will be described by mechanism. No sequence is implied. Blunt impact of head. A V-shaped laceration with the apex pointing superiorly is above the right ear. One arm of this laceration extends to the front and measures one and one quarter inches, and the other arm of this laceration extends to the back and measures one and a quarter inches in length. There is undermining of the skin inferiorly. A two-inch laceration with irregular margins extends from just right of the vertex to just superior to the above-mentioned laceration. A half-inch area of spared skin is between these two lacerations. Dark red-purple bruising, bleeding beneath the skin, and contusion surrounds the majority of the right side of the head, extending from the midline of the face to the right occipital region. Reflection of the scalp reveals patchy subscalpular soft tissue hemorrhage over the entire right side of the head. Depressed fractures involve the right temporal and parietal bones over a 5.3-inch area with a generalized, somewhat circular appearance to the entirety of the fractures. There appears to be three distinct semicircular fracture margins anteriorly. Five fragments of fractured skull are identified, but these fragments do not completely fill the open area of the overall dimensions of the fractures, thus few fragments are absent. That is a tongue twister. The brain is markedly liquefied, yet there is obvious hemorrhagic discoloration of the brain. Evidence of a binding 
A 550 paracord is wrapped tightly around the ankles, overlying the socks. It is wrapped five times around both ankles together and three times around each ankle individually. A knot is adjacent to the right lateral malleus with a short extension of the paracord distally. Another cut end of the cord is behind the left ankle. The cord is removed and submitted as evidence. Dissection into the soft tissues of the ankles fails to reveal any hemorrhage consistent with binding occurring post-mortem. This indicates that neither Russell or Shirley were bound while they were alive. She died from multiple blood force trauma to the head, and then after, her ankles were tied to a bag with concrete blocks in it, and she was dumped. There was zero evidence that she had been sexually assaulted. It has been established that she had to have been dumped where she was found or very close to that area as her body wouldn't have drifted with that weight and also due to the trees beneath the water. She was kind of tangled in the branches, as it were. So now, guys, it's time to think. What do we know? I dug deep and drilled down into this rabbit hole, as you know I do, so that I can save us some time. So... We know that there is no security footage to review because lightning had unfortunately conveniently struck somewhere and fried the cameras. So that's just a no-go there. But there is a sort of security check at the entrance to this community, and the guards noted that no strange vehicles had come or gone from Friday through Saturday. And while the security checkpoint is just what looks kind of like a residence that was perhaps converted into something else, and the only thing stopping anyone from entering is a stop sign and a guard who stands outside, well, it stands to reason that there was a very slight possibility that the murderers entered that way. But that is highly unlikely, and I'm just going to say that there was more than one murderer because it is believed that at least two did this, if not more. That leaves the only way to the Derman residence by way of the water. It is highly likely that the murderers approached the house from the water as the Dermans did have a very small and pretty secluded private dock, and during certain times of the day, the trees also shaded this dock pretty heavily. But just as the guards reported at the gate, no one saw any strange boats coming or going in that area either. The security system on the Dermans' house also did not go off, no boat thefts were reported, and no reports of any boats being, quote, borrowed. The consensus is that the murderers did approach from the water. Then we have the issue of, was this a random act, or were the Dermans targeted? So everyone associated with the elderly couple were interviewed and cleared. Their children were polygraphed and came back clean. The other residents were questioned, and they were all cleared as well. The known handymen, landscapers, and so on were all interviewed, all cleared. And we have no motive. The sheriff investigated all of their financial transactions by means of their credit cards, bank statements, absolutely everything, to see if perhaps there was a connection to maybe their son's murder and any possible blackmails or anything whatsoever, cartel, like anything. There was nothing. Any money moving from just before the murders until after? Not one red cent. Then we have another issue to ponder. From the evidence, it would appear that Russell was singled out, considering he was killed and his head removed, while Shirley was bludgeoned and just kind of dumped over the side of a boat. 
It seems like a secondary act to just be rid of her to me. However, with the gunpowder residue on the back of the collar of his shirt, we have to make an assumption that Russell was shot in the head and perhaps they decapitated him because they didn't want the bullet extracted. Seems reasonable, of course. But the issue with that is that if he were shot in the head, where was the blood spatter? Where was the brain matter? The house was tested stem to stern, and there was no place that tested positive for blood anywhere. The only blood found in that house was in the garage, and it was pooled, not spattered. Russell did have dried blood on the bottoms of his bare feet, but there were no bloody footprints because they found his house slippers beside his body. But it still begs a question of where's the blood that he walked in that got on the bottom of his feet? Does this tell us that he was murdered away from the house? Well, one would think that if he had been shot outside, one, the authorities would have discovered the evidence of that in the grass or on the property, and two, someone would have heard a gunshot. And what are the chances of both Russell and Shirley being taken off-site to be murdered? But still, there would have been some evidence of that with them having to bring Russell's body back to and inside of the house. They wouldn't risk being seen like that, so I'm betting that he was killed in that garage. So how did they keep the blood from going everywhere? Perhaps they wrapped his head in his own bathrobe before they shot him. It would explain why the robe was underneath him and not on his body. It's just the thought I had, though, because there would be evidence of them using his robe for that, you know, kind of all over the robe, if you get what I'm saying, so most likely not. Was it people who thought them to be super rich and this was a robbery gone wrong? I highly doubt that. I do not believe that they would go to the lengths they did if it were that, the perpetrators. I mean, perhaps it was a hit and the head was the proof that the deed had been done. Well, this is an interesting idea, actually, considering the clock company that Russell worked for up north, as far as I found, didn't actually have a facility there. The sheriff himself also said he couldn't seem to find records of that company either. The sheriff stated in an interview that he had some trouble getting records from the fast food stores and Russell being a part of all of that as well. Curious. There were some rumors that perhaps it might have been mob-related, but the sheriff said that he didn't find any evidence of that at all. Was Shirley taken to possibly get her to, you know, extract money out of their accounts to give to the perpetrators? It's a thought, but she didn't even use an ATM card. And what would her motivation be when she knew full well that she was a witness and could not be allowed to live? Could it have possibly been someone who worked for them? It doesn't seem likely. And why give Russell a possible easy and quick death, but beat his wife to death in the head and just dump her? And let's think about this too, right? So decapitation is very rare. The sheriff looked into cases nationally with decapitations where the head was taken. Only one case out of New York in November of 2015, so over a year later, 83-year-old Louise Coley, Coley was beaten to death in her own home in an upscale community. There was no apparent motive. Her family also owned fast food restaurants, but that's where the similarities end. No connection could be established and the murderer was caught and imprisoned. Her murderer was caught and imprisoned. The sheriff also asked other law enforcement agencies for help all the way up to the FBI, but nothing new was discovered. 
There were some rumors of some cult being involved, but that seemed to be a serious stretch. Yes, guys, I dug. I dug. The cult thing just really didn't pan out. And so the only thing the sheriff has now is getting cell tower ping records to see if there could be anything there. Outside of that, there is nothing more. So I want you guys to know that I have thought about this from every possible angle for a week now. And the only thing that stands out to me that no other source seemed to notice, something I caught that no one else seemed to or I noticed, was the concrete cinder blocks. They were red. Most cinder blocks are just normal gray concrete. We've all seen them a million times, right? But the ones in the bag used to make Shirley sink were red. And who's going to carry those in a boat at the ready? It makes me wonder if anyone in that area had some home renovations or new homes being built near there that the murderers had access to, like maybe repaving or redoing driveways. And if so, perhaps the Dermans were noticed by a worker who decided to do this? You know, I have racked my brain. I have bothered my own family to absolute filth about this case, and I... I just can't make heads or tails of it. Any angle that I come from, I there's a way to explain it to where it's just not possible or highly, highly unlikely. So I'm kind of stumped. If anyone knows anything else, let me know. But outside of that, what do you guys think about this case? You can tell me your theories by DMing me on Instagram at serial underscore killing or you can come and join the Serial Killing, a podcast fan page that a lovely listener created. The community is growing very quickly. We're having a giveaway at 500 people. And outside of that, just want to know your thoughts, guys. Thank you so much for listening. Because I know you could be listening to anyone else. But you chose me, and I really appreciate that. Thank you so much, guys. Have a great day. Yeah, anybody who killed more than two or three people was a mass murderer and whether it was all at one place or over an extended period of time and then uh, in the early 80s they came up with this differentiation called serial killing 